We almost didn't make it. Our funding was due to expire on April 30th. We got our approval literally at 6.40 p.m. on April 30th. All right, I am here with Judith Irwin, who is the founding CEO of Grasshopper Bank, and we're going to have some fun today. She has an amazing story of everything that has led up to, and since you started Grasshopper Bank. So, Judith, I'd love to turn it over to you and just kind of get the high level first about what is Grasshopper Bank? Sure, thanks so much, Jordan. So, Grasshopper Bank is a digital commercial bank focused on the innovation ecosystem. So we are all about startup entrepreneurs, investors of all sizes and shapes, share the stakeholders in this ecosystem around those companies. I'm a longtime banker, 35 year banker. I've been in something called venture banking for 25 years, starting out in Silicon Valley. I moved out to New York about 11 years ago. I got, I got tired of driving. You know, you have to drive everywhere in the Bay Area. And so moved out to New York, actually let my driver's license lapse and have enjoyed being a non-driver since that time. But um, I was part of the team that started Square One Bank in 2005. We um, successfully went public in 2014 uh, and were sold in 2015. I left, um, I think I got those years one off. So let me just look at my public box. <laughs> no my shares. I have a copy of my... You got a copy of your shares? My share certificate. That is awesome. <laughs> so, yes, we went public in 2015 and were sold in 2016. And, you know, I'd been there a decade, part of helping build it. And left, uh, thought I was going to take a year off. I live upriver the, up in the Hudson Valley, about 90 miles north of Manhattan, have two small dogs. So my big plan was to come upriver for a year and, and blog. Um, that lasted a month. <laughs> Hold on a second. Was to come upriver and vlog? <laughs> yes. V-L-O-G, B-L-O-G. I was yep. going to, you know, I've got a lot of information in my head over a long career that I'd love to get out of my head and give to other people. But um, I was- All right, we're vlogging right now. Yeah, here we go. (laughs) (laughs) So I was about a month in and failed miserably. I was approached at that time with the concept of starting a venture bank in New York by an organizing group in uh, Southern California called Carpenter and Company. And uh, so went to look at the opportunity, the competition, and decided that this would be a good idea for the innovation ecosystem, but really believed, I didn't really want to do a square one 2.0 or a square two. Mm. I believed that this was the time that for banks to stay competitive long-term globally, that there really needed to be a differentiated technology strategy when building a new bank. And our target clients are the digital entrepreneurs, the investors that invest in them, the ecosystem that surrounds them, service providers like outsourced accounting firms, company formation attorneys. There is a host of of stakeholders in this ecosystem. So went about the the process of 
building a bank on technologies that have only been bank ready about three years. We did decide to go the hard path in getting a national banking license. That is uh, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, the OCC, and then getting FDIC insurance. Happily, after a long journey, we applied for the charter October 2017. We ultimately received all final approvals by April 30th, 2019. So it took about 18 months. We also raised a total of $133 million, which represented both the seed capital and then the capital of the bank. So here we are today, fully licensed company. We've been quietly operating. We actually have now 84 clients. Nice. Um, we have 100 app users. Yay! Now remembering <laughs> that we are a business bank. Those numbers seem really small, but um, in the venture banking world, the numbers are small and you spend a lot of time really adding value to these small clients. So you don't want to have 100,000 clients because then you can only give 100,000th of the time you have to any particular client. What is the typical size, you know, when entrepreneurs are looking at Grasshopper, what is the, the box that has loose edges? <laughs> because of the technology we built so that we could be what I think of as a, the top of the funnel in this ecosystem. So the, the solopreneur, very small startup, you may only have $500 that you borrowed off your credit card because of how we built checking accounts, credit cards, savings accounts, and the automation of opening accounts, I can have that really tiny client and not lose money. That's the secret with the small clients. We really built this so that that means I can continue to invest in products and services for the smallest client. Uh, that's what's happened out there in the banking world is no one can really find a way to make money on old technologies with these tiny clients and deliver any sort of curated uh, banking experience. So, so that's the small end. We also bank some tiny venture firms, some with 2 million in assets under management, to venture firms who have well over a billion or $2 billion in assets under management. And then we bank some nonprofits in this space who are supporters of the ecosystem, granting money for coding skills in the underrepresented communities. Yeah. So our ultimate goal in building Grasshopper was to make great banking services accessible to everyone, regardless of if you have a Harvard MBA or you're getting funding from top decile venture firm, you still deserve to have good banking, good financial services and help along the way. And so, so that's what we've been built for. When you look at starting a bank, I'm sure this has been easy. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to hear what are some of the most memorable parts of this journey, starting this with your team, maybe some pieces of advice for the entrepreneurs out there who might or might not want to start a bank. For sure. It's, well, it is very complex. The, the application itself was something like 1,200 pages. And it starts with building a business plan that for the next 
three plus years, you need to pretty much follow. They do a lot of testing of, we were the first digital bank that the OCC had given a charter to. So their examinations around cybersecurity, privacy, BSA, were we, all those systems we built from scratch. As you can, you've read a lot about how banks out there get fined, you know, tens of millions to billions of dollars for not having the right systems in place around cybersecurity or privacy or following regulations around anti-money laundering. We needed systems that from day one would enable us to be compliant, but also to focus on where the puck will be. Mm. Regulations are not static. And so there, and this, we're going to see a host of changes now because of the type of platform I built, we can morph to the new regulatory requirements without having to do significant reprogramming, re-engineering of our infrastructure. So I can tell you that we almost didn't make it. Our funding was due to expire on April 30th. We had raised $116 million for our capital round. We had previously raised 15 plus on our seed round. We got our approval literally at 6.40 p.m. on April 30th. Our escrow agents, Delaware, the Wilmington Trust, happily worked late so we could call the capital, fund the bank. We had a very binary situation there. So a couple of things to, from a tip perspective, (laughs) is if you can, depending on the fundraising environment, try and make sure you have your regulatory approvals in hand before you do your capital raising. Now, I knew when we went to raise money that the headwinds were going to be against us. We had a terrific partner in KBW as our investment banker. We ended up with over 110 investors and they invested in us at a time when de novo banks, startup banks were completely out of favor since the financial crisis in a time of near zero interest rates. So banks make money by the difference between what you pay on deposits and what you earn on loans as well as fee income. So if interest rates are zero, and you can only charge 6% for a loan, then in a perfect world circumstance, your gross margin is maybe 4%. That's a gross margin. So compare that to SaaS companies, software companies, where your gross margin is 60, 70, 90%. Um, So that means you have to do everything right. We lend that money out because that comes out of our three or 4% margin. So we have to be right 99 point something percent of the time, and which is very different than a venture model. Venture model, as you know, you have one or two companies in a fund that return the fund. I have to be right pretty much every single time. What is it about your personality, you as an individual? (laughs) Like, why? You could be hanging out, you know, you could be hanging out and just be chilling through this crisis, and you could be vlogging every day. (laughs) <laughs> and not have to worry about employees in a bank. No, it's true. When I went to consider doing this, I looked at all the banks in New York. There's a lot of banks in New York. This is a national bank, a national community bank. Um, the innovation ecosystem is. So it's more than just New York. But what I saw in looking at other banks was 
very one-dimensional management team from a gender, age, heritage standpoint. What I saw were boards of directors that were just a generation or two older, but all looked the same. It honestly made me really mad because I've been in banking my whole career. I've known lots of very successful women and people of color and to not see them represented on management teams and boards. In New York City, one of the most diverse cities in the world, was very disheartening to me, honestly. And I thought that I could show that you can build a bank today in a new, within a new technology timeframe, really advancing underrepresented communities, both or um, employees that weren't given a shot for whatever reason or another to represent startups and investors who don't necessarily have access because they don't have big bucks in their pockets. That was really what did it for me. And I said earlier, I have a lot of information and until there's a USB port, I can stick a thing in and <laughs> download. The only way I know to get this information out and helpful to others is to, is to mentor, teach, and provide this information out there. Where does this come from? What, what was your upbringing like? You know, well, to get this, this, <laughs> rebellious personality that says, this doesn't make any sense and I'm going to fix this. I am uh, very non-traditional upbringing. I was an Air Force brat, went to 12 schools from kindergarten to 12th grade, went to four high schools um, before we ended up in the Bay Area. My dad retired and then went to work for Hewlett Packard um, right out of the military. I had grown up in a really diverse world. I found at a very young age when I was a sophomore in high school a real discomfort with the lack of diversity surrounding me. I come from a very humble background. I'm the first of my 56 cousins to go to college. Um, I grew up in a conventional, frankly, my parents were very right-wing conservative military folks. You don't have the same barriers between people when you live in the military. You know, you just, everyone's in it for advancing the community. That's, that stuck with me. So all my life, I felt it my job to both mentor the next generation as well as provide opportunity to those who don't have it. I'm, um, I'm very stubborn. I am also, my husband calls me a Pollyanna because I'm a complete optimistic person, but with this very odd pragmatic streak. So here's the um, issue though, is I'm actually quite a conservative lender because this is the third time I've built this business from scratch. I know what can go wrong with a company. I know that before we opened, got our charter, you know, we're in a really strong spot now. 98% of all banks go on to be profitable. We're very well capitalized. We are going into a really tough time period where many loans are, many banks are going to end up becoming very internally focused because they're going to have loan migration. They're going to, a lot of companies are in trouble right now. Problem loans are going to go up out there in the wide world. I have a pristine loan portfolio. I'm going to be able to, I have money. Uh, we are open for business and we are ready to take care of companies. That gives us a really a big advantage out there in this marketplace. But I am an entrepreneur and I know 
I call it the high-speed wobble. I heard that from a friend of mine. Startups go through high-speed wobbles maybe once a week, could be once a month, maybe you'll go for three whole months. So because I have that awareness, that means I'm, you can't pull the wool over my eyes, you know, if you're an entrepreneur. But because I've experienced it, we can help you get through these things. When you got through, uh, four years ago when I started a business called Debt Maven, I didn't have the emotional toolkit to deal with the ups and downs. I, all I had was perseverance. Lock me in a room with some peanut butter and jelly and I'll be there for a year and get it done. But what I noticed is that the, the toolkit started to develop so that I could recognize my own emotions when was hitting the fan. And I could say, okay, like just chill out. You've been through this before. Keep on going away. How would you define your entrepreneurial skill set? And what are some of the most formative experiences that built that skill set? It's a really great question. When you're, uh, Maya, I've been around this earth quite a few years. I have seen lots of cycles. Uh, my first was in 1990, my first private equity bubble. Then, of course, the internet bubble in 2000, 2001, the financial crisis. What I do know is that nothing is certain. So the first thing you have to develop a some level of comfort with is the fact that things are certain, uncertain, will remain uncertain, and you need to develop your own ability to navigate through that. I've heard and read an interesting, really military approach to times of uncertainty. It's called UDA, observe, orient, decide, act. That's sort of like the aim and then shoot. It's the same thing where you evaluate what is the situation, good, bad. Don't delude yourself. You know, the first thing, the first mistake is, even though I'm an optimist, I am definitely very pragmatic around this is a problem. We need to either solve it by creating a solution or we need to step around it. And so that's where the whole observe, orient, decide, act comes in. Having really smart people around you is important. People that are, you have to be comfortable with having people smarter than you as part of your team. I'm pretty smart cookie. There's I have a lot of experience, but I have an experience that is in this sphere. So there's a whole lot that I know that I don't know. So having really good people and advisors around you this is, again, where diversity and comes in. You need to have people who you know can safely disagree with you so that you can hear alternative viewpoints. Because one of the things I, I tend to do is sometimes get stuck in my own head. And then you're just, boozle, I call it boozling around with the same thoughts over and over again. So recognizing when you're getting into that circular mindset, stepping away, picking up the phone, and calling someone to ask to have them even just listen to you. I think we all have some level of ego. And it's like, as we go through some like more and more business experiences and things start to work, then it starts to be like, Hey, this is how it's done. Um, but this kind of makes me think the ups and downs of career. And I'm, I'm wondering like, what are some of the big challenges or just flat out, you know, mistakes and how did you, recover from it? And what was the lesson from it? So I think early in my career, I tend to be a bit of a risk taker compared to most bankers. You know, you, bankers and entrepreneurs 
those two words aren't often said in the same sentence. And, you know, there's a reason for that, that banking is heavily regulated. There, there isn't as much uh, discretionary authority to do things you'd like to do. So the ability to work within restraints um, becomes really important. One of my early lessons in banking, you know, what you have to do if you do loans, you, you have to pitch your deal internally within certain credit policies and get them approved. So early on when you're, I, I, I was a baby banker at one time, learning to not pretend like you know something you know that you don't know, that's a big thing. Don't pretend like you know something you don't know. That is a mistake that I see something that most frequently I, on my own mistakes were made when I was in my 20s. And then I figured out that, you know, saying you don't know something means that someone will probably in the room give you the answer. And now you know. Having really smart people around you, telling the truth always. People, I think, bad news, good news. I think another mistake that I made early in my life was over-promising. Because you want to be the hopeful optimist, the entrepreneur. I, I don't have the operating system. Cool. Like, I'll go build it. It's like, I can do this. I'll find the team. I'll find the money. So I think being brutally honest with yourself and your team and also your clients and your investors is really important because that builds a level of trust that becomes dry powder for you in those relationships. Being, I, I think, transparency, telling the truth thinking outside the box, having, I, I love talking with people who don't know anything about banking and presenting them with a problem and, ha and watch them process in a way that's so different than other bankers. We, early in our hiring, we brought, brought on people intentionally, didn't know banking, to help us rewrite processes and best practices. So this again comes back to having people who are smarter. Different, who have not been in this one uh, line of thought for 15 years and say like, this is how we do it. I can get it done next week, but this is how we do it. And then listen, you know, it doesn't do any good to have all these different opinions around you if you don't listen. I believe there's a hundred ways to do the same thing. There's no single one way to do it. And being open to those other ways brings you a lot of new opportunity. In the issue of diversity, uh, diversity and inclusion, there's been a lot of ground that has been made for minorities, women, if, particularly if you just look in finance. And um, maybe we kind of focus on maybe like the growth stage all the way up to buyout, because the venture stage seems to be relatively making more uh, faster gains. But, um, you know, what are your thoughts on going into difficult economic times what does this mean for diversity and inclusion? I, well, I'm, I'm pretty worried about it myself. Um, usually in times of crisis, people go back to things they already know. Um, and, you know, what we already knew before were, was particular pattern recognition and in investing, particular pattern recognition in choosing vendors, um, partners. And so... It, this could be a time where we lose some of those gains. And, and I agree with you, there have been gains, but in my world, I've gone from being one of 1% of bank CEOs who are women to part of 2% of bank CEOs who are women. So we have more than doubled, but it's still only 2%. So I do think that this is not a time for us to relax 
our focus on continuing to raise all boats. Because ultimately, when we're on the other side of this crisis, we're going to need all hands on deck to carry us through to time of, of health and a robust economy again. And, and I think when you go into difficult times, that's a case for diversity because you want people who don't think the same way because you can't do things. I, I've had that literally in the past two weeks. Like part of our services are doing videos. We, we know a brand video. Well, guess who's not doing brand videos right now at 10 G's right now? They're not dropping it because we can't fly and the economy. So we have to think of completely different ways of, of doing things. And you need a team who says like, why are we doing it this way? <laughs> well, I'll give you an example of that for Grasshopper. Uh, you know, one of our go-to-market strategies is being a big part of the, net, the events that occur. New York, there's New York Tech Meetup. There's all sorts of activities. You know, we used to have South by Southwest. We have all, all sorts of ways to network in the, um, this ecosystem, but of course, none of those are available to us. So we are experimenting with virtual events. We had a fun one yesterday uh, called um, Don't Go Crazy, Call Me, or something like that, where it was a bunch of, it was 25 founders who just got together to share tips on how to navigate in this crisis. We published a resource guide that has pulled together information from all over the, the world in this, all over this ecosystem, and put it out there for everyone to access. We update it frequently but it's things like how to work best remotely, how to fundraise if you're a GP, or how to fundraise if you're a company, tips and tricks around you know, providing resources for your virtual team. That's been pretty successful. Our whole- What do you think is gonna happen with like the future of work and where we work and how we work? Well, I think that we have a really great opportunity in front of us from a you know, frankly, a climate change perspective, an efficiency perspective, the whole concept of physically going into a place. You know, this is why the urban ecosystems have become so dense. That's where the growth has been in this ecosystem is we're all close by. We can just run into, you run into people all the time in the streets of Manhattan um, and can collaborate. Can't do that here. But what I'm finding really interesting First of all, with my Grasshopper team, you know, we're doing virtual coffee breaks and we have team meetings. We use BlueJeans, you know, we use Zoom as well, but BlueJeans is our video conferencing. I've actually found the distance between us to have shrunk, that now we're in places like we now have met your three-year-old. You know, my, my dogs are out in the yard, otherwise they'd be barking. You know, I think it, it actually has been shrinking the distance between me and my fellow grasshoppers, but also me and my venture clients, my entrepreneurs, because a lot of artifice, formality, those things have fallen by the wayside. And now we're actually communicating face-to-face. -face. That bodes really well, not so great maybe for the heavy carbon footprint of airplanes, um, but now maybe business ties globally will become tighter. And um, this has been really the focus of our technology is that last mile between the bank and the client where we are bridging that digitally 
and we'll be able to digitally curate services by delivering it directly to your desktop. That means that the distance between me and my client is, um, is six inches instead so of- So this distance mine. might actually end up bringing us closer together. That's right. And I think creating significant opportunity outside of urban areas. So I live up here in beautiful Ulster Park, outside of Kingston. And you know, the, there is an innovation ecosystem up here. There's a upstate New York Venture Capital Association that covers this massive geography. Well, the upstate um, Venture Capital Association event is gonna be virtual. I'm actually gonna be able to interact with a bunch of people I wouldn't normally be able to interact with in ways that are still meaningful in digital ways. And I've had that. I, my 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 wife and I have been thinking like long term, where do we live? And then it's like, well, hey, if you want to play ball, you got to be on the field. But right. guess what? This field's getting a lot bigger right now. That's right. And the it's no longer necessary to be here. And then especially as behavior is changing. You know, I don't have to just pop into Midtown to go do something. We could have a meaningful interaction just like this that'll have the same meaningful relationship points as if we had this, uh, if we met up for coffee. That's right. Um, no, I mean, just think about um, all of us have gotten back in our day what our commute time was. Now, for some people, uh, maybe that's a 10-minute walk. But for many people, I've got lots of folks who take an hour to two hours to commute into Manhattan to do their job. Well, now they don't, they now have four hours back in their day. And that can be spent with the family, that can be spent cooking, that can be spent doing more work if you want to do more work. Yeah. But, um, no, I think that we could actually see productivity gains in this time. There's period. gonna be a restructuring of like how we think about our day, having space from family or in the apartment or house or wherever, but it'll overall, uh, this distance will bring us together and what a great place for a digital bank <laughs> to be placed. And I think that's a great place to wrap this up because that is, uh, as a, it is a, uh, a ray of hope. And, you know, right now we need to hear positive stories. We need to hear that there's a better, something better at the end, uh, once we get through this together. I agree. You know, we'll, we will all succeed if we all help each other right now. And so it, while this is potentially a scary time, it's really increased my um, trust and belief in, in other people. Because um, now we do have to rely on each other much more than we've had to in the past. So it was great talking to you. Nice meeting your family. <laughs> and um, I wish you well and um, be safe, be well. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for doing this. All right.